0: Everyone, we'll, uh, we'll continue and conclude actually in our study of, of Hebrews as we've been going over it for the last few weeks. So, um, our attempt today is going to be to cover the last two chapters, chapters 12 and 13. But we'll begin for our reading this morning uh, just over in chapter 10. It mentioned there if you Followed along that kind of outline, I gave it the start, that this marks really the break point between the the early instructions from the scriptures and the transition into, well, what are we to do about it? And the verses are verses 19 to 25, we'll just read those, therefore... without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching so in our initial outline we pointed out that as As a result of what we have in Christ, what he has done himself, found all the way through Hebrews that he had really done it all, hadn't he? And and yet it comes to this point where because we have access through faith in Christ into the holiest, which he has made by his own blood, that there's three things to do and that they would line up really with uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13. Uh, Chapter 11, of course, speaks of uh, faith and answers to verse 22 here. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And we noticed last week uh, that there was, I had Drew read the whole thing, which uh, might seem might have seemed long but in fact it just his testimony to the fact that there were many many who have walked in faith some better than others and yet in the end of it all uh, they were credited with walking in faith and we saw that that the Lord was honored that his plan could be seen that it was communicated to the world around by them Pointed out that in some cases, like Isaac, in fact, here's, here's a fellow who had some, but really his life didn't measure up so well. And, and yet the mercy of God calls the blessings that he wrongly, that he got mixed up, uh, that the Lord straightened out and, and the Lord called it, uh, faith. And I wonder if looking back, we'll, we'll have some things too. And we think, oh boy, did I ever drop the ball there? I was not walking in faith, and yet the Lord's able to unscramble that for for those of His own, and He'll call it faith in heaven anyway. That's just the grace of God. It's kind of like the you know that uh, story uh, at the end of John John 21, there where the Lord catches the fish, but He says, "Come and bring the fish that you caught," uh, giving credit for the fact that there they were out on the sea, faithlessly uh, fishing, and yet. He wins the day and, and gives him the credit. That's just the kind of the Lord we have. And because of that, we, we need to realize then that we have uh, a great reason to walk in faith. And so we're to do it in full assurance. So today we're going to move on to chapters 12 and 13. And verse 23 answers to chapter 12. I hear pages flipping, but I'm still in chapter 11. right? <laughs> so verse 23 really answers to... This idea of let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And chapter 12, as you know, goes into the the idea of of dealing with sin and weights in our life. But because we are going to hold fast We're able to keep going. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we've come across what we feel are hard verses. They're the ones that say, if you continue to the end, if you endure to the end, if you keep going to the end. And that stumbles us because we thought, I thought our salvation was sure. And it is. But the reality is, here we are learning and growing, and and we're in a difficult task. We're walking in these bodies, trying to do it failingly by faith, though, and and sometimes we want to give up. And so chapter 12 is going to exhort and encourage to keep going and to finish it so that in the end we'll uh, be able to hear those words, well done, though, good and faithful servant. Seems like those can fall by the wayside, can't they? And not actually complete the work they were assigned. Maybe you know people like that. And they went on for a while. They had a great testimony. Uh, and yet something, something stumbled them along the way. You're wondering what it was and why they just shriveled up after that. And you long for them, you pray for them. And and yet now you're, because you don't really see any lasting fruit from your point of view you wonder what has happened there I can assure you that uh, the Lord knows them that are his and says the other side of that coin but all those that name the name of Christ depart from iniquity so so the Lord uh, will uh, deal with us in discipline won't he and uh, that's what chapter 12 is going to discuss and then finally, chapter 13 is going to answer to verses 24 and 25, and this has root in uh, considering everyone else around us. Our job is not an isolated one. But in verse 23, it says, "Let's hold um, sorry, verse 24, it says, "Let's consider one another, stirring up love and good works, not forsaking, assembling of ourselves together." but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching, we're going to see as we go that there's some practical things that we can put in place, that we can make sure that we avoid the pitfalls that are out there for us, and there, we'll, we'll see there's a list of seven things that we can, we can write them down and, and do them on a daily basis. And uh, the whole point of that is that it's not just me, I'm not a, a little island here that that we need to recognize we need each other. And that's how uh, chapter 3, you remember when we were back there, it talks about exhorting one another daily because of our propensity to become discouraged and to start listening in on things that aren't right, that the Lord can't be trusted. He, he wasn't really going to bring them into the land. You know, he's just brought us out in the wilderness to die. You remember how, how they said it to Moses there, is it because there wasn't graves in Egypt that you brought us out here? It's interesting, the turn of phrase used in the scripture sometimes. But the reality is that sometimes we can start to feel a little discouraged. And, and so we find real practical things of how we need to consider each other. Um, we can see when people are being tested hard. We want to make sure we're there to encourage them. We want to uh, do these very basic things. So, having said that, by way of introduction, maybe we should just pause in a word of prayer here, ask the Lord's help. It's his word after all. Lord, we just pause in my presence and we recognize that we need to look inwardly to make an assessment. Realizing that your plan is being worked out and you delight to use those that you have called out of this world, out of darkness, translated into the kingdom of your dear son to be the voices, the feet, the hands of compassion, the witness of the truth and of the light in this world. And we want to have the process of our being sanctified to continue, that we would continue to grow and become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to learn from you this morning and commit ourselves to that. Lord, lead us in this week ahead even as we think of uh, the fact that you are leading us uh, by the way. So we give you our thanks now and ask by help in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now we can turn over to chapter 12. So, the writer here of the Hebrews... He kind of concludes with these points really, and as we as we look through chapters twelve and thirteen, he's had us look back at those that have walked in faith. Now we're going to look at our current situation, what we have, and then what we need to do. And very often, as we look spend our time looking around. It's never a good thing to do, right? He's already said looking unto Jesus is where we need to look. But we look around as we walk day by day and we see difficulties. We sometimes see the the successes, the things that he has done, but more often we're troubled by difficulties. And it, it makes us wonder how we should move from here. And what we want to consider is the idea that Uh, discipline, chastening, is something that the Lord does in his people. And the writer here is reminding us that we are his people because of this discipline that we may be experiencing or will experience or have experienced. We are his people. That's the point. So he's driving in. Think about who you are. Son of God. Not the Son of God. A Son of God. You've been brought into this relationship, marvelous as it is. I mean, you were so far outside of that before. Strangers from the covenants and promises, you remember. But have been brought into a place so near that you're considered sons and heirs. And so, as... As such, let's just read from verses 3 down to uh, verse 11 here. And consider the discipline of God for a moment. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten... He says, the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For when the Lord loves, I'm sorry, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. But nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, one of the things we want to realize is part of the growing process as a Christian is the same as the growing process as a, as a regular earthly son, isn't it? So, we, have, we all understand how it works you have children, they come forth from the womb speaking lies. Uh, They want what's for themselves. They don't want to listen to their parents. And furthermore, they think their parents don't know anything to be listened to anyway. Well, uh, hopefully, early on, when they're, I don't know, this size, is the best time to get started on the process, is to uh, discipline, to train and what they need to be learning, well, we've talked before that the most important thing that a son needs to learn is obedience, right? And that was something that we read in uh, chapter 5, that even Christ himself learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Now, so earthly sons, they're they're learning how to, and I should say daughters, but so if, uh, if the idea that they're all sugar and spice and everything nice, <laughs> but. But what we're doing is we're learning how to respond in obedience and in faith to those that have the responsibility over us, and we learn and we grow. Now, what happens is we test where the edges are, and as we do this, we sometimes we get a little, uh, you know, slap on the hand, depending what we're doing. We're grabbing something not that we are, are not to be And Sometimes what comes out of a child is is something a little more malicious and aggressive. Is I don't know, maybe they're they're taking a toy from somebody and uh, leaving their mark on that somebody as they do it, right? You've probably seen that. And so the disciplinary uh, activity becomes elevated. My whole idea is it only hurts for a bit so that they can be trained by it. Well, you've perhaps known examples of children that never really were trained by it, and they wanted to chart their own course all the way through to the end. Uh, now, that's not what the Lord wants from us, of course, so he's going to continue this process, but <clears throat> the process of chastening, we discover in the scriptures, has a similar kind of a form, in that sometimes it's it's the kind of a, a rebuke that our conscience feels when we read something in the Word of God and we recognize you speaking to us. And we say, nope, that's not for you. You're not to behave that way because I said this. And, and that's just a gentle rebuke. You know, that's the best way to learn. To read it in the Scriptures and to be trained by it right there. But sometimes it takes a little more. Uh, and we don't listen to the Scriptures. And we find out that our life just becomes hard. It's hard to kick against the goads. The Lord would say to Paul, wouldn't it? And so, as we continue to push on and push on against what uh, the Lord is trying to instruct us, we find that we just encounter difficulties. And as as we go on further and further, we discover that well, in First Corinthians, it says, you know, some of you are weak because of it. But some are actually ill, sick physically, and others have died. And and this is the reality, that the Lord is working with those of his own to correct them. And the scripture here in verse 11 says, if we allow the correction of God to take its course, uh, prior to dying, of course, the idea is that it will yield fruit, peaceable fruit of righteousness, it says by those who are trained by it. So we want to be trained. As I said, first we want to allow the Word of God to teach us first. Some people have had children like that where you you tell them and they believe you and they just do it. Now, I don't. But, but some have and I'm often envious that it's that easy. Others, of course, have ones who have to... Uh, You have to have further discipline. You know, it's a really hard thing as you think about uh, those who have to be put out of the home. That's a hard thing for a parent to have to do. And, And watch from a distance as the child is charting their own course and learning things the hardest way possible. The idea for us as children of God, of course, is to be as obedient children, hanging on the very words of God, isn't it? to be trained and to go on and grow. The children, you've known them, who, who uh, uh, learn quickly from their parents. They go on faster. They don't have as many marks from the journey, do they? And it seems that sometimes they can uh, progress a little faster and go a little farther. Now, the Lord, thankfully, he's, he's put against the earthly fathers in the fact that, notice in verse um, <clears throat> Uh, ten earthly fathers—they have this flaw, by the way—is that it only—it's what that seems good to them. They make mistakes too. Um, it says they chasten us as seemed best to them, but He, for our profit, you can be sure of this: that when the Lord chastens us, it is always for our good. It is exactly what we need. That offers me great comfort because I am not exempt from this in case you're thinking I'm suggesting that, that whenever something hard comes in, and I recognize this is the hand of God here, because I've been out of order, what I learn is that, A, He still loves me, and enough to do this, and secondly, that it will always be for my good in the end. And, that it will yield fruit do you notice where he is bringing us it says in verse 10 there that we may be partakers of his holiness now we are sanctified aren't we we're sanctified now in position he's set us apart but we're not perfect yet There's there's an ongoing process of being sanctified and he's making us holy as we go We want to allow that process to continue. Now, the illustration that's used here is that of a runner. And that actually begins sort of in chapter 12 and verse 1 there, where he says, let us lay aside the weight and the sin. So the weight is kind of like a training weight. That's probably like the law you could say, and sin, which so easily ensnares us. Well, these are, for the sake of the context here, and I suppose it could be anything, but I want to suggest that at least it includes shortcuts, shortcuts to holiness. And what we're to do is to run with endurance, with patience, the race that, that he has set before us. Now, this illustration is picked up further on now, and it's in verses, um, well, we'll begin at verse 12 here. Because as you're running a race, somebody who's, who be, is under the discipline of God, metaphorically speaking, will find themselves stumbling in the race. They're going to find uh, themselves perhaps fallen and stopped. And I don't know if anybody here has ever run in a long distance race, but, but once you have fallen and you're stopped in the path it's hard to get going again it's much easier just to keep going your arms keep moving your legs keep moving one step at a time but once you've stopped you've lost you've lost all momentum it's very possible you have some bruises to contend with some nicks some scrapes not to mention the fact that people have seen you fall there may be some embarrassment that goes along with that And I'll tell you, it's a lot easier just to stay stopped. People have passed by. You might tell yourself, you know, it would be too hard to catch up now. I could hardly get to where I am. This is what it's like running a, a race. And what the counsel is here in verse 12 is, it's to strengthen the hands that are hanging down. Like this. They're just hanging down now. And the knees. Your knees are feeble. You're becoming weary as a result. It says strengthen. That's an interesting word, by the way. Um, I noticed that it really means to make things 90 degrees again. The idea is bring them up here. Straighten yourself up. In fact, it's the word that's used of uh, one of the, uh, where was it? I think it's in Luke uh, to say 13. The woman who came and she was bent over she couldn't straighten herself and the Lord straightened her and she was it says of her that she was held bound by Satan but her being a daughter um, uh, a daughter of Israel don't know, a daughter of Abraham sorry think. Uh, a daughter of Abraham he straightened her up and set her on her way this is the idea to be straightened up again where you once were and and then to go on it says to um, make straight paths for your feet somebody having found themselves because of maybe taking a shortcut as i said earlier you know a lot of people want a, a quick way to holiness and the reality is that the life of a christian is every day one day at a time. You want to get there fast, I know. Um, but it's, it's not like that. We need to keep going day by day. So, anything you've ever done, say you're learning a musical instrument, they always tell you, practice every day, right? They don't say, Take and group all of your half an hour a day times together and do it on Saturday. The teacher always says do it every day. And the reason is this daily continuance in the things of God is what's going to uh, get us there. So don't be taking shortcuts. Shortcuts, of course, are places where you're going to trip and stumble and fall. And that's what it means here when it says make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame, because as you continue on running, there's going to be the effects of what you've just done. So be aware of that. This is one of the reasons why people don't want to get running anymore. You know, it's hard. It's a lot harder to limp to the finish line, isn't it? But it says to keep going, making straight paths so that as you go, the idea is that it won't be dislocated, but rather be healed. Says verse 13. And and it points out that there's ways to continue to go here. Uh, let's just read from verses 14 to the end. Pursue peace with all, and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and and by this may be, uh, many become defiled. Lest there, and then he goes in, explains the illustration of Esau, right? lest there be a fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. But you know, afterwards, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. And we commented a little bit on this, I think it was last week or perhaps before. Uh, the idea is is here that as as we continue on, we don't want to be unaware that what we have still is this root of bitterness. Now, you know what it's like. You go out and uh, Joanne often goes out and she's concerned with what our neighbors think about our front lawn and so she picks all the weeds out of it, right? And so then they're gone. Well, not really. The root's still down there. And, uh, you know, if you don't watch, it's going to come and it springs up, because they seem to grow way faster than the grass. I don't know how your lawn is, but uh, what happens in us is if we have just got up and caught going and not had a proper assessment done, then the bitterness, because I've fallen and somebody else has, has gone past, is going gonna, is gonna to spring up again. I'm going to be falling again. So we're to beware. We're, we want to take a look at what is in us, and and make sure that we give a proper assessment of it. Now, I want to, you to know here that though he refers to Esau, the idea was that Esau didn't really have an appreciation, did he, about uh, what the responsibility of the firstborn had. He was really to look after the rest. Yes, he got a double portion, uh, but he was responsible for everybody else. He really didn't embrace that, did he? Now, Jacob did. And he got it uh, through deception and all the rest. We know the story. But you've know, you got to realize that Esau was still going to be looked after. Esau was still going to be in the family. Esau was going to be one that Jacob then would, would care for ultimately. But it wasn't going to be Esau's job anymore. And what it says in the New Testament is to, to watch and let nobody take your crown. So if the Lord has something that, that you're to be doing... Don't give up on that for some temporary setback. But rather continue on realizing that you're to fulfill what the Lord has called you to. Now, the next handful of verses here from verses 18 to 24, he wants us uh, to look up and to realize that there's, and he uses these two mountains as metaphors and he says in verse 18 that that the mountain that the children of Israel had encountered, Mount Sinai. They came there, and that's where they got the law. In case you think the Lord is impressed by keeping the law, the the mountain of the law was a pretty gruesome one. It says, um, notice it says, you have not come to the mountain that may be touched. Now when you read that, you realize that that mountain was not to be touched. (laughs) The problem was, you could touch it. Just this this week, um, uh, they were getting the place where I worked, cleaned up for audits and things that are coming, and there was a lot of painting being done. And all through the plant, there was wet paint, don't touch. And uh, sometimes, uh, it seems like the signs were really small, but I tried to make a point of grabbing the handles, and, you know, that's... I don't want to tell you how many times I just push the door open like I always do. And, oh yeah, don't touch. The reality is that if I'm going to work in this environment, even accidentally I'm going to touch the door. And the fear was if I'm at a place where the rules of God are so decisive and unmoving, and I'm working around it and the odds are that I'm going to be touching it. What a fearful thing that would be. You'll notice uh, if you go on in verse 20 there, it says that um, that if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it would be stoned or shot with a dart. You know, what do they know? They're just wandering around. This mountain of the law of God was so terrible that anybody touching it, they were going to be under fire. It points out, though, that that is not what you need to be afraid of. Because you haven't come to a mountain like that. You've come to a mountain that is far more inviting. A place you can go. A place you do have access to. And he describes it here in a number of words. Notice how it builds in its description as it goes. In verses 22. You have come to Mount Zion. And Mount Zion... It says, is the city of the living God. You recall, that's the one that Abraham was looking for. The city whose foundation has, uh, whose foundations, builder and maker was God. It's not an exact quote, but you get the idea. Uh, So he's come to that. But not only is it the city of the living God, it's actually the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of peace. We talked about Melchizedek being the king of righteousness, and he was the king of the earthly Jerusalem, wasn't he? And yet, it's bigger than that. In that great city, it says, there's an innumerable company of angels. Now, if you went back to chapter 1, you would realize that the angels are those, the ministering spirits are those who are going to inherit salvation. So, you've come to a place where you've got all kinds of help. These are the kinds of angels that came. You recall they came to the Lord Jesus once in the. Ah, uh, well, they came once just after his testing in the wilderness, and then they came and they met him there in uh, Gethsemane. And at the hardest place, they were there. They were available when his enemies came to gather him. They were available. You didn't call on them, though, of course, you know. But they're available. It says, "You have come to this innumerable company of those who are." Uh, there to minister to those who inherit salvation, and then it says, not only are they there, but it says to the general gathering, the general assembly, the the whole group. It's kind of a look into heaven, isn't it? Like in Revelation 5, and you see all of those who are going to be there. And then it says, it's to the church of the firstborn. So here, the firstborn is up there, the Lord Jesus Christ, and as as his assembly. There, there too. And then it says <clears throat> that they're registered in heaven. And that God, who's the judge of all, is there. But we're not afraid of that because just men are there. Those that He is justified and made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator, we have somebody that goes between there and here for, for the time being. The blood of sprinkling. So it speaks that we have a hope we have assurance, we have security so we can get up and keep going. We don't need to be afraid of this mountain of law that that the Jews had. And this is really inserted in here to encourage us to keep going despite having fallen in the race. Verses 25 to 28 reminds us that we are not to refuse this one who speaks to us. It's verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. And he points out that um, that they who had the law, finally they said, no, we don't want to hear any more of this. The, mo- the more we hear, the more accountable we are. And in fact, they told Moses, um, they, you know, where was it you know? now? Back to verse 19. It says here that they beg that the word should not be spoken to them anymore because of their great fear. It says, so so that's not our fear. Therefore, we don't want to refuse this one who is speaking to us. He goes on to explain that there's a day coming when he's going to shake things up here for a second time. Now, he quotes Haggai. If you recall the story of Haggai, the the story, the prophecy of Haggai, the Lord spoke to the people in Haggai's day and, and was was telling them that this is not the time for them to be building special houses for themselves. That the house of God should be built. That that needed to be their focus, their main purpose, the house of God. But they were engrossed in just looking after themselves. Fifty days later, he came with his prophecy and said, I want you to tell everybody to to be strong and to hold on. Because I am coming to shake things up. He says he's going to shake. If you were to turn to Haggai, I think I'll just mark them down here. Um, uh, yes, He's going to shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, the land, the nations. And then all will come to the desire of the nations. He's speaking of the Lord Jesus there. So the call is to be strong in, in our walk here. To not be holding on to the things that are going to shake and fall, which it says um, in verse 27, Now this yet once more, he said, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. This really is pointing us to really how we are to be in this world, not so much for ourselves, all for the things. You know, it says to lay up our treasures in heaven, where they can't rust or corrupt. The idea is to. To not be holding on to the things of this world. Because it's not lasting. You recall we talked about Lot you know, the last time I think we were here. And everything he had, he had to leave it behind. It all went up in smoke. And there was really no value left for him. What Abraham had was eternal. So let's go on. And in my last six minutes there, that clock is correct. And let's take a look. There's some practical to-do's. Once we know who we are, once we see where we're going, we need to look around and to realize we need to be united in our resistance against sin that ensnares. And there are seven to-do's that we find here in the next handful of verses in chapter 13. And I would suggest to you that we've, we've all known people that have kind of fallen aside and they're just not going on. It's possible that if they were to analyze their, their lives, that they would have fallen down in one or more of the things that are listed here. <clears throat> and, and they are really this. Um, verse 1 is brotherly love. The first three real, really have to do with caring for others. Let brotherly love continue. First Peter um, would say, "I wrote it down here." Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. Back in Genesis, where a lot of Hebrews points to, you find that brotherly love is lacking desperately. There's all kinds of brothers in there. And they're often pitted against each other, vying perhaps for their father's praise or blessing or or acceptance or whatever. And and as a result of not getting it, they turn against each other, you know. And really when things start to fall down in the church, in amongst the people of God, it's, a, it's because brothers can't love one another, won't love one another. It's a terrible thing. Not not surprising it shows up first on the list of to-dos. If you want to get on the track and you're not sure where to begin, love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Actually, you'll know that First John says that this is a mark of being a Christian all by itself. If a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he loves not his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? Now, the truth of the matter is, how we love our brothers is how we love our Lord. When Peter was uh, told to uh, feed God's sheep, It was an answer to the question of do you love me? How he treated God's sheep was a direct representative of how he loved his Lord. Second thing is here to entertain strangers. It says in verse 2, don't forget to entertain strangers by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. I would suggest that this also points back to Lot. Not so much Abraham. I think Abraham knew who he was talking to. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right, he said. He knew who he was talking to. Lot, on the other hand, clueless, right? Clueless. There he was in Genesis 19. And, and these angels, two angels, show up in town, in the middle of the street. There he's sitting there. And he knows the town he's living in. He knows that anybody coming into his town is going to be subject to the influences of this place. In fact, they might, you know, be be beaten and abused as a result. And so, Lot, at least realizing why he had moved there, as far as God's concerned, to be a blessing to others, he he invites them in. In fact, he won't take no for an answer because they, you know, angels aren't too concerned about it. Oh, no, no. We'll stay out here in the street. He he presses them and they come along with him. I want to suggest that when we're told here to entertain strangers, we need to recognize that there's people who aren't from around here, people who have a need, and we really don't want them corrupted and influenced by the things that that we know the world we live in can do. What we want to do is is press them to come in. We want to notice them, press them to come in. To we want to. Uh, you know, it says a Lot there, actually, that he made a feast for them. And they ate and they dined there. Now, he had no idea that, in fact, these were the angels of God. But because of his willingness, even in his ignorance, well, he got a special benefit, didn't he, of being, being told, well, tell you what, go tell all your family members and let's get out of town. This is what, he got to understand what was coming. As a result of his just obedience in doing what he's supposed to do. Care for the people around that are less fortunate. And that's one of our real roles, and that's how we can be an influence for the Lord. So as you see people that are that are in need, make sure that they're considered. Um, same with the prisoner, you'll notice in verse three, it says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. This reminds us of, of the Lord Jesus. How shocked some people are going to be at the day when at rewards day, and he says, you know, as often as you've done it to one of the least of these, you've done it to me. So as we consider the 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 prisoner, the the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, um, the homeless. Those he he takes that as though we're doing it for him. And so the prisoner here, this is this is not just by our prayers, by the way. We often get prayer requests, don't we, for those who are incarcerated for the gospel's sake. We want to make sure that we're concerned, like writing letters, letting them know. You'll notice one of the things that the Hebrews did do in uh, chapter 10, verse 34 says, For you had compassion on me in my chains. That was one of the things they were actually known for. So no doubt that meant they wrote the, the letters they sent in whatever to minister to the needs. Maybe it was, I don't know, what kind of accommodations they got in prisons in those days, but I'm thinking there wasn't a blanket, so they probably sent the things that were necessary for, for this one. We want to be doing these things. Uh, then it, you'll notice the next one has to do with maintaining purity. So fourth on the list here, marriage is honorable among all and bed undefiled, the fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Of all the uh, ones who have stumbled over the years having professed Christ, how many has it been because of eyes that look uh, to the left and to the right? The the list goes on and on. The Old Testament is full of it and I'll tell you what, since the, the time of the finishing of the writing of the New, uh, the New Testament, I don't know that we'd want to count those that have been stumbled by adultery and fornication. Of course, this is something that the enemy of souls delights in, because what better witness of the heavenly relationship are marriages? So I want to suggest to, to people that. Uh, Know people who are married to pray for them. People that are married, guard yourselves. And people that are considering marriage to realize that you're entering into a a sanctity that is representative of a heavenly uh, reunion, a heavenly union between Christ and his bride. And so, of course, this is something that needs to be demonstrated. There's lots of instruction in the New Testament. We don't have time to go into now, but just consider that this is one of the the seven things that the writer here says you can do right away. Uh, Notice verse 5 says, covetousness. Be content. It says here that if you have the Lord who will never leave you nor forsake you, then you have everything you need. You have everything you need. Now, In this verse that he quotes, it says, The Lord is my helper, and I'll not fear what man can do to me. He's my helper. Did you know that you're on his business in this world? But he, because it's his business, is providing you with everything you need to do it. I think that's marvelous. And so rather than being covetous and desiring what others have, or what you might think you need, and therefore try and get it using dubious methods. He says, you just let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things you have. I'll tell you what, contentment, it says, is great gain, says Peter. And then, the next thing is to remember those, verse 7 says, Remember those that rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow. The idea of following godly examples is critical. You just don't know everything. And the best thing to do is to follow those who, who have demonstrated a life of godliness over the long haul. It says, remember those who rule over you. I wanted to put in a plug to pray for those too. I don't know if remembering includes that. But pray for those because, because it's over the long haul. Of course, this is the time Titan would want to stumble those so that they're no longer a good example that can be marked up to follow. Anyway, so follow godly examples. And then lastly, it talks, uh, and this really has to do with our we need to be in the word because we're to beware of strange doctrines. It says here in verse um, um, 9. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it's good that the heart's established by grace. And so it goes into some examples there. But the point is this. There's always new ways to, to the fast track to being holy and being godly. Just do this and everything will be fine. Well, that's not true. It's it's not a quick thing. It's a continuous thing. You notice the verse that he slipped in between those last two? Following godly examples and being careful of false doctrines is this verse here. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, forever. He is the epitome of consistency. Never changes. I'm so glad. Therefore, we can trust him in all these things. Well, my time is gone. So those seven things, you might want to just consider those things and what they actually mean practically in in your life. Uh, You might want to think about uh, how to, if if falling is something that has occurred or is occurring or may occur, how you will handle it. Looking up and seeing that everything's been handled, but but really, the end of this book ends with the idea, it knows it's an exhortation. It knows, it, he's asking us to, to dig deep and be honest. He says, bear with the exhortation, uh, that I write and go on to perfection. Now, <clears throat> our time is gone, so we'll skip the hymn I have here. But, um, I want to just end with this verse from, from 1 Corinthians 13. You'll know it. Again, you'll find faith, love, and hope are the keys that that are all over all of the New Testament writings, and they show up in the form of chapters eleven, twelve, thirteen here. But, <clears throat> but in First Corinthians thirteen, it it ends the thought there with this: <clears throat> "For now we see in a mirror dimly." It's verse twelve. But then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know just as I am known. And now abides faith, hope, and love. These three, that the greatest of these is love. So, I take that to mean a couple of things. One is that faith and hope will pass, so of course, when we see Christ face to face. But love will endure forever. But secondly, that, that love is the thing that we can, that is very practical. To demonstrate the character of God among all those among whom we serve, and whom we shine as a light in this dark age. Let's just pause in prayer. Father, we